the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, we are just finishing off the first chapter of Matthew, and we're, uh, we ended on page 45 of your handouts which means you have to have last time's handout or you, you'll, you won't have it in front of you. But we were uh, discussing this verse, this quote from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And we talked, we ended our class several weeks ago when we last met uh, with this whole discussion of the virgin birth and uh, how much of an enigma it is amongst those who are not not believers. Understandably, our, our faith is based upon a supernatural uh, view of God, that God is supernatural, that He does things that, that no one else can do and things that we can't explain. Now, I'm sure that there are some who who think that we hide behind that every time we come up against a difficulty and say, well, you know, okay, it's not a difficulty. God can do miracles. Uh, there is reasonableness to our faith. But the bottom line is that our faith is based upon the miraculous work of God. And if we if we think, well, it's just impossible that a, a virgin will uh, be able to conceive and bear a child, say, well, if you think that's impossible, then we really don't have much more to talk about because that would mean the creation of the world is impossible. That would mean the creation of a, of a soul is impossible. I mean, that would mean that the resurrection from the dead is impossible. So the virgin birth, while it may uh, offend the scientific consciousness of modern uh, man, it certainly is not beyond or out of the scope of what God does and what he intended to do and what he did. The virgin birth is one of those, I guess what we would say, cardinal foundational doctrines or teachings of the scriptures that divide uh, those who accept the scriptures and those who don't. I don't see any way that you can have... Um, a biblical view of Yeshua without the virgin birth. If we believe that uh, that sin passed from Adam to all of his progeny, and we believe that Yeshua was conceived in a normal way, we have no other option than to say that Yeshua himself partook of the sin of, of Adam. And if that's the case, he's not our, he, he is not fit to be our sacrifice. Well, we have mysteries that we cannot under, we cannot explain, and the virgin birth is one of them. Uh, nonetheless, we hold to it, and uh, we do so on the basis of faith. As those who come from a Protestant tradition rather than Roman Catholic tradition, as I've said before, the, the, the virgin birth is something that's a little more difficult for us to talk about just with this real big smile on our face. The reason is, is because when we do, we start sounding like Roman Catholics because the Roman Catholics are constantly talking about the Virgin Mary this and the Virgin Mary that. And so we have a tendency to, I think, kind of shy away from that a bit, but we don't need to. The miraculous birth of Yeshua is uh, tied with this fact that there was a young lady named Miriam, a Jewish young woman, who by God's act and by God's work conceived and gave birth to this one we know as Yeshua. So, um, top of page 45, 
second paragraph, in the end, we cannot base our acceptance of the virgin birth upon evidence from history. The miraculous birth of Yeshua comes to us from the pages of Matthew and Luke, founded upon their understanding of the prophetic anticipation of the Messiah in the Tanakh. We believe it to be true because we believe Matthew and Luke to be true. And it is not surprising that the mystery of the Incarnation at its very heart can be received only by faith based upon the words of Yeshua's trusted apostles. For the very center of our faith is likewise without human explanation, namely, that God would send his Son to redeem sinners. So, this is why it will always be, uh, when you finally get down to the foundational things, what will be the first line of attack of those who would rather not uh, uh, have to agree that what we believe is true? The first line of attack will be, the Bible isn't true. If you extract the Gospels, then you don't have any record of Yeshua. You just don't have any record of Him. You don't know anything about Him except um, from what we have in the Scriptures. Now, you say, well, there were others. Who, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a paragraph in Josephus. But by the time you come, uh, you have to come to Eusebius and, and later historians before you have any inclination of who this Yeshua is. The ground of what we believe about Yeshua is found in these Gospels. Yes, question. Okay, yeah, the, the question is, how did the apostles understand, who, who told them this? My speculation is that Mary did and Joseph. I don't see any reason why Mary and Joseph wouldn't have been first-line witnesses to those, uh, certainly their community. I mean, um, it's to, to be honest with you, it's uh, those of you that are listening on the tape, you, you may, I don't know what year you're listening to this tape because these tapes... These recordings might go on and on and on. Who knows? But th this is the year 2005, and we're, we're in the month of December, or close to the month of December. And as is typical of, uh, of America, we're inundated with Christmas. So it's interesting to be studying all these texts uh, right at Christmas time because there's a lot of people that are uh, talking about the birth of Jesus and the birth of Christ. Um, when we... Uh, in, in, in the second chapter, you have the, the Magi, you have the uh, so-called wise men uh, coming and looking for the, the child, baby Yeshua. Okay? And you know, it says that the star came and, and uh, rested over the place where the child was. Um, well, there, there's, we were shaking our head about that. But I, I, my suggestion is that they probably came to, the star showed them that the region was Bethlehem. They came to Bethlehem. They started asking people, Do you, you know, a couple years ago or a year ago or so many months ago, we saw this star. And was there any baby boy that was born at that time? And you might think to yourself, well, who would know that in a village? Hey, the shepherds went out there and they saw this miraculous thing. And what does the text tell us they did? They came back and told everybody. So, I mean, the, the idea that there were these events that were well known within a community seems to me not to be anything far-fetched. And for the apostles to have begun to gather um, after, after the ascension to gather facts about how are we going to uh, relate this, I'm sure that they were able to talk to people who, who knew Mary. They probably were able to talk with Mary. Why wouldn't they be? She was there at the cross, right? So 
you talk to him and say, tell us the whole story. Tell us everything. <laughs> you know, I'm taking notes as you talk, or, you know, I want to remember this. You know, we, we forget that in the ancient world, particularly in the, in the, in the ancient Jewish world, um, traditions were passed on orally and kept very carefully and closely because that was the way that they did it from generation to generation. And so you have the whole Talmud and the whole Mishnah. What is it? Such and such said in the name of such and such. And that whole thing wasn't even written down until you get to the second century. So the idea that, that disciples would retain the, the, the important memories and teachings of their mentors uh, certainly would have given the opportunity for these gospel writers to have a lot of information, a lot of firsthand information, and maybe even personal information from the mother of Yeshua and from his father. I mean, I know I, w- I would love to have asked some questions like... You know, what kind of kid was he? I mean, did you have to, like, get after him all the time to get his stuff done? Or, you know, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Once. Yeah, you tell him once. Well, well, that's that's the way it's been with my kids, hasn't it? No. All right. So let's go on. How then does Matthew utilize Isaiah 7.14 as indicating a prophecy fulfilled in the birth of Yeshua? And, of course, this has been a... If you go back and study Isaiah 7.14, which we have done in other, in other settings, other classes, he's saying, wait a minute, is this talking about Yeshua? Is this something that's talking about during the time of Isaiah? It, how can it be a sign to the people of Isaiah it was, if it was a sign, if it, if it waited that many years for Yeshua to come? Well, a lot of people have asked that question. How does, he, how does Matthew utilize it? He does so in the manner of what I call Midrashic Haggadah. Now... Haggadah means telling a story. Midrashic means uh, taking a principle that has some connection in the story and applying it to something that, that has a connection. There's a bridge, there's a connection. That is, in drawing obvious parallels from the prophetic message of Isaiah, parallels that also incorporate the telescoping nature of prophecy itself. You see, the prophecy in the Tanakh is, can be viewed as a telescope. Okay? It can also be viewed as a spotlight. A telescope, you look at something and you see something far off. You don't see it as clearly as you do when you're standing right next to it. But you can, you can see it. You can make it out. You can speak about it. And the prophets did that. But the prophets also were like a light shining in the darkness saying, look, there's the one. You know, like a spotlight. That's why we can't understand the apostolic scriptures if we don't have the Tanakh. The Tanakh is a light that shines forward to help us understand uh, who Yeshua is, what he was planning to do, what he, in fact, did. There's probably, I don't, I don't know that there's a more graphic description, at least in prophetic uh, language, than Isaiah 53 for the, the, the death and the accomplishment of salvation and even the resurrection of Yeshua. That's pretty, it's pretty clear. All right, so the prophecies of Isaiah contained in chapters 7 through 9 incorporate the motif of children. Isaiah's own children are prophetic portents. In other words, he names them. He gives them names that relate to what's going to happen. And the birth of children, both in 7.14 and 9.6, I'm using English numbers here, English Bible numbers, mark the manner in which God will save and restore his people Israel. For the nation of Isaiah's day, the birth of his own children and their names were to be signs to the nation of God's plans for their deliverance. The name of Isaiah's son in 7.3 is Sha'ar Yashuv, the remnant will return. You name your kid this. 
Why would you name a son something that pertains to God's prophecy for the nation? The son born in chapter 8 is given as an illustration of how short a time would elapse before Israel's enemies would be overcome. Before the lad would be old enough to call out for his father or mother, Assyria would plunder Damascus and Samaria. In other words, these two little firebrands that are bothering you, Israel, why are you even concerned about it? Before this child knows a difference, is able to call out to his mother, they're going to be gone. And that happened. Historically, that happened. Thus, the births of the prophet's own children were to remind the people that God was with them and that he would secure their salvation. This general motif is then telescoped to the distant future in the prophecy of Isaiah 9. If the current military struggles against Israel were of grave concern, how much more was there a need to see Israel's ultimate redemption? Rezin and Pekah, the enemies of Israel, were nothing more than smoldering firebrands about to be extinguished. But how would Israel obtain her final shalom? Would she constantly be overcome by this king or that nation, always fearing for her very existence? The current struggle that she had in the time of Isaiah brought into sharper focus the promise God had made to bless her ultimately. Where were these blessings? How could God's chosen nation obtain final and lasting peace? It is to this question that the prophet's words telescope, for they looked at the conclusion of the story through the lens of the current struggle. In the same way that God had provided for the temporal deliverance from the foreign powers, so he would ultimately send his Redeemer who would establish eternal salvation and shalom. Chapter 9, verse 6. Even as the children of Isaiah were reminders of God's presence with his people, so the coming Redeemer would be Immanuel, would be God with us. It is no wonder then, given this overall perspective of Isaiah's message, that Matthew and others would see its application to Yeshua. So do you see what I'm saying? He said, look, here's, you remember our history. You remember what Isaiah said. You remember the, the, the divine uh, revelation he gave with regard to how he was going to bring, bring deliverance from our enemies at that time. <clears throat> but then read Isaiah 9.6. We, ch- we have children in every one of these chapters. And here's this one, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor or Miraculous Counselor, Everlasting Father, or should we say Father of Eternity, owner of eternity, I think is a better translation. One who owns eternity, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. I mean, here's one that has, okay, you ha, we, God gives you a victory here, God gives you a victory there, but the ultimate victory is going to rest upon the shoulders of someone who owns eternity and will bring lasting shalom. I don't think that's far-fetched at all in terms of understanding the, the, uh, the three chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. And the very fact that it says, and, I, and we went over this last, uh, the last class period, you know, Alma in, in Isaiah 7, 14 means an unmarried woman. But the point is, Isaiah says, speaking for God, as though God is speaking, Behold, I'll give you a sign myself if you don't want to ask for one. Here's the sign I, I will give you. An unmarried woman will be with child. And she will bring forth a son. Now, in what way would an unmarried woman being pregnant be a sign of God's grace? Of God's mercy? That should be a sign of God's judgment. Fornication is not God's way. So how could could an unmarried woman have a son and let that be a sign of God's deliverance? 
and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Has God changed his justice? Has God changed his way of looking at things? No. And that's why the Septuagint, looking at the overall context, said, oh, well, this must be a virgin. So they used the word Parthenos to translate Alma. That is the same situation that Matthew finds himself in as he, as he undoubtedly reads the Septuagint, but he also knows the Hebrew. He has that same idea. And he knows now where the ultimate telescoping pro- prophecy of that, of, of that Isaiah, Isaiah uh, expression now has been fulfilled. Here it is. There's one perhaps that he even talked with. So the name given to this Redeemer in Isaiah 7.14 is Immanuel. God is with us. Indeed, throughout the Tanakh, the presence of God with his people assures them of his protection and salvation. How many times do we read, particularly in in the prophets, do not fear, I'm with you. Don't be afraid, I am your God. I will uphold you. I will hold you with my right hand. Don't be afraid, I'm here. Uh, We are in a society that's filled with fear. I was in the post office yesterday and and somebody uh, that was mentally, uh, I think, uh, either on on some medication that he shouldn't have been or, or, or forgot to take his medication, wasn't taking his medication, was became, came in and was absolutely paranoid that there was a, uh, somebody outside with a gun that was planning to come in and shoot us all as we're standing in line. And the lady in front of me starts literally shaking and whatever because she had just been at the Tacoma Mall a week and a half ago and was there in where the shots were being fired. I mean, she was having a meltdown. This fellow eventually climbed over the counter to the other side and tried to hide. That's how paranoid he was. Well, there was nothing. But our society is full of fear. Uh, If we had lived in the ancient world, we might know more about this kind of fear. As we'll talk a little later on here, uh, the name Herod comes up. If you want to, you know, maybe all of you have. I know I have in the past. I had to do this in high school, but I had more or less forgotten it. So I went back and I reread the history of of Herod the Great. Unbelievable. I mean, it was nothing for him to just massacre people left and right just because he thought it might be an advantage to him. People lived in fear in this time. And the fact that the, that the one who came was called Immanuel, God with us, was a, re, a, a reminder that if God is with you, there's nothing to fear. Nothing ultimately to fear if God is with you. And as my father used to tell me, if you want the presence of God, you need to sh- keep short accounts with him. Keep short accounts with him. Don't let things pile up. You know, when you need to say, I've sinned, forgive me, then, boy, don't wait. Do it now. So that, Emmanuel, it may even be that the sacred name itself, you understand what I mean by the sacred name, yod heh bears this emphasis, for in its original giving in Exodus 3.14, it is, I will be. Ehyeh. When Moses says, who should I say sent me? What does he say? Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. I will be what I will be. Well, what does it mean, I will be? We, 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 you know, and everyone has speculated philosophically. Well, I will always be the same. 
I will never change. I'm the unchanging one. Well, that all may be true and, and, and probably is. But if we look for this same form, this ehye, this first person imperfect of the verb hayah, to be, I will be, if we look for the same form in the Exodus narrative, we find it three times in close proximity to the revelation of God's name in Exodus 3.14. Just a few verses earlier, he says, certainly I will be, there it is, with you. And this shall be assigned to you that it is I who have sent you. In, in chapter 4, verse 12, Now then go, and I, even I, will be with you. Anochi ehie. It's almost like you could read that if you were reading the Hebrew and not knowing, and you thought ehie was a name. You could say, you could translate it, I am yehie. I am, I will be. <laughs> 4.15, you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. It may well be then that the I will be is a shortened form of I will be with you, the very meaning of Emmanuel. Thus, when Isaiah speaks of the child given as a sign, he notes that he would be called Emmanuel. Not that he would bear this as his common name, but that in his very coming he would bear the essence of God's name, that is, the very presence of the Almighty, by which the salvation of his people is made inevitable. So, you know, this has been one of the questions that the anti-missionaries have said. Well, look, if you think Isaiah 7.14 is a prophecy of Yeshua, why didn't they ever call him Emmanuel? It says, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Well, it's quite obvious that, uh, that the names of people and the, and the names given particularly that God gives of himself are in an indication of their character and of their work, who they are. I even speculate that there were, you know, the names that we have of some people were not the names by which they were called. Who would call, who would name their son Ish-bosheth, which means a man of shame? That sounds more like a name that was given to him by somebody else after certain events. Okay? So, um, it, it may be that even some of the names that we have of character, character, various uh, characters in the uh, Tanakh were names that speak more about what they did than names that, by which they were actually called. The point is, is that Immanuel was who he was, not what he was called on the ball field or playing soccer or whatever they played. Uh, th- that's my point. His name was called Yeshua because he would save his people. But why would he save his people? Because he was Immanuel. He was God with us. This is why the fact that the name given to the son of Joseph and Mary, Yeshua, is not in contradiction to the name Immanuel, for the very meaning of God with us is that of salvation. Don't fear, I'm with you. I will deliver you, I'm with you. I will save you, I'm with you. Those are the same, uh, essentially saying the same thing. In that Yeshua came to save his people from their sins, he also proved to be Immanuel. In quoting uh, Isaiah 7.14, Matthew adds an explanation of the Hebrew term Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. Now, why would he have to do that? Isn't he writing to Jewish people? Well, maybe he had some visitors. You know, maybe he figured there would be some newbies that would come into the community. Would no, no. The, the, the reality is, is that we may not like to admit it, but the Jewish communities of the first century were very Hellenized. Now, just consider if, let, let's say, for instance, God forbid, but let's say, for instance. Um, all of us had to leave uh, Tacoma, and we and we had, were uh, transported to Vietnam, and we set up living in Vietnam. Well, 
now think 100 years from now. How many of your family speak English? If you were a really tight, close-knit community, you might maintain your English for certain things, but when it came to you know, buying at the store and when it came to existing in the society, you would be speaking Vietnamese. And it would be very difficult 200 years later to even think that any of your kids would even know how to speak English, and they certainly wouldn't know how to write it. Well, <laughs> Israel has been in exile. Israel is not in her, she's in her own land, but she's ruled by people, by nations that are not uh, of, of her tongue. And so Greek and Latin uh, were, particularly Greek, were the lingua franca. And people, it's, it's, it's un, undoubtedly clear that the Jewish populations of the first century were very fluent in Greek and very conversant in it. And it's not unlikely that many were not all that fluent in, in, in the Hebrew of the Tanakh. So it's, it, it, it wouldn't have been surprising at all for someone to say, oh, and by the way, that Hebrew term means... Thus and such. Since these letters are being circulated somewhat later, perhaps even after the destruction of the temple, and since the synagogues of the way were clearly a mixed community, it would only make sense that even though the primary audience might be Hebrew, writers would recognize that there would be non-Hebrews uh, reading and uh, listening to the letter as it was being read. And so for that reason, they would... And good, very good point. Excellent point. But when he, when he translates it, God with us, he orders the Greek to reflect the Hebrew. He puts the preposition first. With us is God. This corresponds to Imanu El. Imanu, with us, God. Putting the pronoun first. The miracle indeed is that God should dwell with his people. But it is even more profound when the emphasis is put upon with us. With us, he is. He is with us. God, God is with us. That God would dwell with holy people is at least feasible, but that he would dwell with us, those who have rebelled against him and rejected his kingship, this is all the mystery. And I think that's the emphasis in the name Immanuel. God can do whatever he wants, but that he would want with us to dwell, that's the miracle. Which is verse 24 and 25. Any questions or further comments on that? those points that were made? We kind of tried to uh, dovetail with our f- last class. All right. So, verse 24 and 25 of chapter 1. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary... Uh, as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua. This concluding notice is crafted after similar concluding statements in the narrative portions of the Tanakh, which have, number one, a verb of action, number two, notice that the action was in accordance with God's command, and number three, subsequent results. You know, after you, if you study the Torah, if you read through the Torah on a regular basis, like, like we do, you begin to see these patterns, you know. Uh, how many times in the book of Exodus do we have? Uh, and so God commanded, saying, do thus and such. And so they got up and they did just as God commanded. I mean, we just have this repeated over and over again, especially through the book of Exodus and the building of the tabernacle. For instance, in Exodus 7.10, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh to just as the Lord commanded and perform the signs. The staff becomes a, a snake before him. In our text, Joseph awakens, does what the Lord commanded him to do, and does not have relations with Mary until Yeshua is born. This pattern of obedience would have been familiar to any who had 
knowledge of Torah, particularly the book of Exodus, in which we find that each part of the tabernacle was constructed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. In utilizing this well-known form, Matthew is emphasizing Joseph's full obedience to the revelation he had received from God in the dream. Once again, Joseph is portrayed as a righteous man. His every action is in accordance with God's will. And this is done to highlight the fact that the child Mary was carrying was not the result of fornication. You know, we have two Josephs, one in Genesis and, and one in the Gospels. And there is, the, the parallels are unbelievable, but the more that you study, the more you realize. I mean, is there anything bad said about Joseph in Genesis? Can you think of one thing that Joseph did that was wrong? I mean, is this guy too perfect or what? And everything that we know about Joseph, who, who was the husband of Mary, is exactly the same. He's, he's a man who follows. He does what God tells him to do. He does it when God tells him to do, do it. He's, there's no marks at all on either of these two men. And that, that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, would it be that any of us could um, go down on the annals of inspired history with such a, uh, a clean slate? The angel of the Lord, in verse, uh, we also had it in verse 20, functions here as in the Tanakh, as the messenger from God who comes with divine authority. Now, here's a very interesting phenomena because there, there have been those, and I've been among them, who have said that the appearance of the angel of the Lord was perhaps, in some cases, in the Tanakh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua himself. Now here's the angel of the Lord, but Yeshua is is the product of, uh, of this conception. So the angel of the Lord is speaking, uh, obviously it appears, as other than the promised Messiah. So that's what I mean. Thus the angel of the Lord gives the command to Joseph regarding Mary, but it is understood as God's command. In fact, the angel of the Lord often takes on divine attributes in the Tanakh. This may be seen in the Akedah, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, as well as in the revelation of Manoah, mother of Samson. When Manoah asks the angel of the Lord to reveal his name, he responds, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Here the use of wonderful, peli in the Hebrew, denotes divine attributes for the root pala regularly denotes the miraculous. In the same way, the angel of the Lord directs Joseph with divine authority. And Joseph took Mary as his wife. Normally, the betrothal period ended with a public ceremony in which the woman left the home of her father and came into the home of her husband. It was only after the ceremony that the marriage was consummated through physical union of the couple. This is why Matthew gives to us the added information that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Um, Literally, the Greek says he did not know her using good Hebrew idiom. Joseph um, no longer feared to take Mary as his wife, but the matter of a physical consummation of the marriage awaited the time following the birth of the child. And that was not the normal thing. In fact, um, the Mishnah, which I recognize a bit later, and the Talmuds say that it wasn't uncommon to have uh, weddings on Tuesday for, for, for numbers of reasons, but one of which was because the courts convened on Wednesday. And if there was not uh, a proper consummation of the marriage, it could be annulled. So, I mean, there was a, there, there was a clear legal uh, protocol in terms of how uh, marriage uh, was finalized after a period of betrothal. And uh, Matthew wants us to know that Joseph took Mary, as God had commanded him to do through the angel, and received her as his lawful, uh, lawfully and legally wedded wife. But... Their marriage was not consummated until after Yeshua was born. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled 
a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. suggested that the wording and did not know her until she had birthed a son negates the later doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. You know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that uh, that Mary was perpetually a virgin and they would say, well, here's a phrase that he didn't know her until after, meaning that he did have relations with her after. But the Greek does not necessitate this. And I give you a bit of the grammar. Still, had Matthew held to such a doctrine, had he believed in the in, in the perpetual virginity of, of Mary, he would have most likely used a less ambiguous statement, for the wording he uses would surely allow normal marital relations between Mary and Joseph following the birth of Yeshua. Likewise, Luke would have avoided the use of firstborn when referring to Yeshua, had he believed that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. It is clear from the record of the Gospels, I think, that Mary and Joseph did have children, that the Gospels speak that way. And I know that the Roman Catholic Church says, well, they were cousins or they were nephews or something. But um, it seems quite clear that they were, they were brothers. Uh, the earliest uh, actual documents that, that, that describe uh, this doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary are found in the second century. So it isn't too late. It isn't, I mean, it isn't too long. Once the uh, church emerges in the, in the second century, they begin to really perpetuate some of these doctrines which are become very entrenched early on. And he, that is Joseph, called his name Yeshua. And this just simply reiterates verse 21. Only it changes from the command, you shall call to, he shall call. Throughout the, this first chapter of Matthew, the overarching theme is that of promise and fulfillment. The promise revealed by God through his prophets was that one should come who would bring salvation. He would come through the power of the Almighty by above human means, and he would save his people from their sins. That the chapter ends with a simple yet profound notice, and he called his name Yeshua, emphasized that what had been promised was now realized in the birth of the Messiah. And we'll discover that Matthew is very big on promise and fulfillment, seeing the prophecy and matching it in, as fulfillment in Yeshua. All right, we got through uh, chapter 1. Yeah, I mean, that's we're, uh, we're 128th of the way there. All right, let's tackle uh, the beginnings of chapter 2. Chapter 1 has focused, and by the way, if, if you have your Bibles, please turn to, uh, to Matthew chapter 2. So you have it in front of you. I know I'm, I give it to you here in the, in the text, but there may be something in, in your margin or your notes or something you'd like to underline if you do that to pique your, your memory about something you want to study. Chapter 1 has focused on the identity of the child. The question was, is being answered, who is he? Showing his connection to the royal line of David and describing him as the one promised by the prophets to bring salvation to his people. Chapter 2, however, takes an interesting turn, for it describes the manner in which the king, Yeshua, would be received. In other words, the question now is asked, what is he? Okay, who is he? We see his lineage, his connection, but now, what is he? What does he do? Foreigners, the Magi, come to give him honor, while Herod seeks to take his life. By the way, Herod was from a family that had become proselytes. So, Herod's family were viewed as Jewish. 
even though the Jews didn't really count him as such. But he was from a family that, that were proselytes. From the very beginning of Matthew's story, we are confronted with the fulcrum of God's love. And that fulcrum is the person of Yeshua. Those who reject him are left to their own demise. But those who receive him as king are granted entrance into his kingdom. By the way, entrance into the kingdom, you know, the thing that we will see that characterizes the Gospels is this kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It's a very big concept to wrap ourselves around. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? There are many things, but one thing for sure. The kingdom is viewed as a safe place. If you're in the kingdom, you're safe. Um, when, my, when, when my daughter was uh, before she came to be part of our family, and um, the, the, the orphanage in Liberia, West Africa, uh, was, had uh, cement walls, about five to six feet high, maybe a little higher, seven foot high, and had barbed wire around the top. But what made her feel the safest was that there were iron gates that were locked at night. As long as she was inside of that, she felt she felt safe. Um, and uh, the, I remember when she first told me that, when we were there, because... Um, uh, we didn't have such a thing on the building where we were staying. <laughs> and she wanted to know for sure if the door was locked or not. But, the, you know, the, the, the idea of being somewhere that's safe and being in God's kingdom means that you're in his fortress. You're in his kingdom. He, 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 he locked the gates. <laughs> and, uh, and there is certainly that in mind in terms of eternal salvation. There is this, there is this idea that you are in his kingdom and therefore, uh, you have the protection of the king. Moreover, we are introduced to an undercurrent of Matthew's story, the ingathering of the Gentiles. Here, the first to honor Yeshua are foreigners. Even as in the gospel accounts, the first to recognize the risen Messiah were women. The gospel writers have, have, have a great uh, delight in taking the people that think they're the most important and <laughs> putting them second. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, the injunction to make disciples of the nations forms the final commission of the master. So we have kind of bookends, right? These pagan Gentiles come in and worship Yeshua. And at the end of the gospel, what does he say to his disciples? Go, make disciples of all the nations. While the primary focus of Yeshua's ministry will be to the lost sheep of Israel, and he'll even tell his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. The fuller picture of the ingathering of the, gent of the nations is consistently heard as a counter melody to the main theme. All the way along, there is this gathering of the nations that you hear, this little motif. I, uh, sorry for the musical uh, uh, illustration, but if you're listening to a symphony and if you've, if you've analyzed the symphony, you know that there are motifs and anti-motifs or counter-motifs, and you hear those. They're woven little, subtly, in and out, and you'll hear it in the oboe, and you'll hear it in the clarinet, you'll hear it in the violin. You won't hear it completely. You'll hear the theme thundering through, but there will be these other little themes, and eventually, sometimes, those themes become the main theme of, uh, of, of, of the final movement. So, that's the picture I have here. You have these little, these little themes throughout Matthew that are saying, yes, the Gentiles are being drawn in. Yes, the Gentiles. Yes, the Gentiles. He's going to the lost house of Israel, but he has not forgotten the promise made to Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All right. Verse 1. 
Now, after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... How many times have we read that verse? I think we could almost say that from memory. (laughs) The paragraph in the Greek begins with a grammatical construction which clearly tells us what's happening in this chapter is subsequent, and I would even venture to say quite subsequent to the actual birth of Yeshua. According to verse 11, Mary and Joseph reside in a house. They're no longer in, uh, you know, in a stable. They're no longer in a cave or wherever it might have been where, they, where, where, they, where she actually gave birth to, to Yeshua. No, they're actually living. There's a house. That the Magi visited the stable where Yeshua was born is the mistaken notion of later Christian traditions surrounding the celebration of Christmas. But, you know, it's amazing how strong those traditions are. You ask the average church-going person if the, if the wise men came to the, sta- came to the manger, and they, most of them will tell you yes. They've just seen it too many times. They've just they sung the song uh, too many times, one too many times. Why does he say Bethlehem of Judea? Well, Bethlehem is located about five or six miles south, southeast of Jerusalem. And Matthew wants to continue to link Yeshua with David. It was David's hometown. It was where he was anointed king of, of Israel. And it is called, in, in, in at least a couple of places, the city of David. Bethlehem was also the place of Rachel's burial. Remember when she died, and the, the tomb of Rachel is, is in Bethlehem, as well as the city in which the story of Ruth is set. So there are some very important things that went on in this house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means. Perhaps Matthew adds of Judea to distinguish the southern Bethlehem from its northern counterpart in the region of Zebulun. There was also a Bethlehem in Zebulun, according to Joshua 19.15. There was a, so, a, a somewhat famous Levite <clears throat> that was from that city. There is an Arab village at this location which retains the name Beit Lacham. Rabbinic sources contain some indication that Bethlehem was known as the place of the Messiah's appearance. Though in this regard, such few references in the rabbinic literature may indicate a later desire to distance the tradition from from the Christian use. In other words, the Christians early on made a huge point of Micah 5.2, which Matthew is going to quote. You, Bethlehem, the least of all the clans, from you will come forth one who will rule in Israel. And so the Christians said, look, where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. He fulfills that prophecy. So it's not uh, unreasonable to think that there may have been more references to this in the rabbinic literature than there are now. But I, I've listed a few. Uh, in Midrash Rabbah, we read about the shoot of Zechariah 6.12, which the rabbis understood as a messianic symbol. And we read about it this way. Rabbi Yudan said in the name of Rabbi Aiva, his name is Comforter, meaning the, the uh, Messiah. As it is said, the Comforter is far from me. Rabbi Hanina said... They do not really differ because the numerical value of the names is the same, so that comforter is identical with shoot. The following story supports what Rabbi Yunan said in the name of Rabbi Aivu. It happened that a man was plowing when one of his oxen lowed. An Arab passed by and asked, What are you? He answered, I am a Jew. He said to him, Unharness your ox and untie your plow as a mark of mourning. Why? He asked, Because the temple of the Jews is destroyed. Or we should understand it to mean the temple's. This is a portent saying the temple is going to be destroyed. 
He inquired, From where do you know this? He answered, I know it from the lowing of your ox. While he was conversing with him, the ox lowed again. The Arab said to him, Harness your ox and tie up your plow, because the deliverer of the Jews is born. What is his name? He asked. And he answered, His name is Comforter. And what is his father's name? He answered, Hezekiah. Where do they live? He answered, In Birat Arba, in Bethlehem of Judea. Likewise, in the Targum of Micah 5.2, you understand Targum, right? The Aramaic translations of the Hebrew. We read, And you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, you who were too small to be numbered among the thousands of the house of Judah, from you shall come forth before me the Messiah to exercise dominion over Israel, he whose name was mentioned from before, from the days of eternity. So here, the, the, the Targum clearly links Micah 5.2 and Bethlehem with the coming of Messiah. On the basis of John 7:27, which reads, however, we know where this... Okay, remember this dispute is always disputing between the Pharisees and Yeshua and his, his claim to have uh, be doing messi- uh, the job or the work of the Messiah. They said, look, we know where this man, Yeshua, is from, but whenever the Messiah may come, no one knows where he is from. And scholars have said, well, look, it, it was the common belief in the time of Yeshua that they didn't know where he would come from. Uh, some scholars have suggested that a tradition that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem was a later Christian addition. But the words of Yeshua's detractors in this text most likely reflect the idea that the Messiah was from eternity. That Yeshua, a local fellow, would claim to be the Messiah seemed out of sync with their idea of the eternal status of the promised Redeemer. At least that's my suggestion for that passage in John 7. Now, in the days of Herod the King, those of you that are into chronology... <clears throat> Um, Go for it. Twice Matthew refers to Herod as king, contrasting him with king of of the Jews about whom the Magi inquire. Herod, the son of Antipater, who was murdered in 42 BCE, was born in the late 70s BCE and ruled the Jewish regions of Israel from 37 to 4 BCE. He was officially granted the title King of Judah in 40 BCE by Antony uh, Antony and Octavius. According to Josephus, from whom we glean the majority of the evidence for this period, Herod died shortly before Passover, Pesach, in 4 BCE. This being the case, most scholars put the birth of Yeshua between 7 and 4 BCE, which causes a big problem because everybody says... How could he be born before, you know, because B.C. usually, I use B.C.E. and I use C.E., meaning before the Common Era and the Common Era. But the, the traditional B.C. before Christ and uh, A.D. Ad Domina, which means the year of our Lord. Uh, how did that happen? Well, there was somebody in the 6th century who decided to recreate the calendar based upon the, the uh, building of Rome and just had his years mixed up. So, you know, that's we have to live with that. Joseph uh, Josephus also mentions an eclipse of the moon shortly after Herod's death, which has been calculated to have happened March 12 or 13, uh, 4 BCE. Ernest Martin, in his book, however, has given evidence that the eclipse occurred January 10, 1 BCE, and he proposes a date for Yeshua's birth of September 2 BCE. Now, I like that date. I, that, that date works for a lot of other things, okay? And I, I wish that uh, that I that there's just enough evidence that makes makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. But that would make perfect sense because that would if he were 30 if he were 31, 32, 33 at his death, that would put him 
at around 31 or 32 at the time of crucifixion, which is which fits well in, in other things. It would also mean that uh, when he was 12 years old, it would have been 10. It would have been the year 10 CE, which is two years before Hillel died. So he would have at least, we would have had some reason to think that he had some connection with Hillel. And uh, it seems as though even if he didn't have connection with him, he certainly understood some of his writings because the so-called golden rule is just a positive statement of Hillel's well-known negative statement. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, which, by the way, is also found in the Didache. But um, it would be nice. The difficulty presented by, by the fact that Josephus gives 37 years of Herod's reign, 34 years from the time of his effective reign, is countered by Martin by suggesting that Herod's successors antedated their, antedated their reigns to 4 BCE, but this may not be con, uh, convincing. In other words, he says those who followed Herod backdated some of their reigns. While a good deal of debate continues over the year of Yeshua's birth, there is no good reason to discount Matthew's notice that it was during the reign of Herod the Great. At the end of Herod's reign, he fell into physical and mental anguish, and history substantiates his penchant for executing people at will. His own final demise may be linked to his having executed his own wife, Miriam. Um, it seems likely that Matthew's notice that Yeshua was born in the days of Herod the king have more than chronology in mind. The parallels to the Exodus story in which Pharaoh attempted to put to death all male children are obvious. I mean, don't, don't, when you read this story and you think of the Exodus story, there's just a lot of parallels, right? Midrash Rabbah, Exodus 1.18 gives even closer parallels. There, the reason provided for Pharaoh's genocide genocidal decree is that his astrologers had informed him that the mother of Israel's future deliverer was already pregnant with him. Moreover, the Midrash notes that Moses was born amid great light. Here it is. And his sister stood afar off, Exodus 2.4. Why did Miriam stand afar off? Rabbi Amram, in the name of Rav, said, Because Miriam prophesied, My mother is destined to give birth to a son who will save Israel. And when the house was flooded with light at the birth of Moses, her father arose and kissed her head and said, My daughter, thy prophecy has been fulfilled. This is the meaning of, And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel. Though this Midrash is admittedly late, it may well reflect an early tradition and may have given Matthew his link to the decree of Herod. If this were the case, then Matthew is clearly using the redemption motif of the Exodus as a fitting portent of the birth of the final Redeemer. Even as Moses was born to lead Israel out of her slavery, so the Messiah came to save his people from their sins. And any commentators that you read, almost any, are going to say, look, the connections are too close. Matthew must have had Moses in mind uh, when he began to tell the story about Yeshua. Did he just tell the story so it matched? No, I I think it actually matched. I think those that were were listening and watching what was going on there had to connect the two. And so, uh, why wouldn't they? The story of the Exodus is, is, is a primary example, or shall we say paradigm, is the paradigm of salvation in the Scriptures. All of our salvation language comes from the idea that uh, Israel was saved from slavery. All right, we're just going to uh, enter into this issue about the Magi. 
And it says, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. How many were there? By the way, the New American Standard Bible leaves out the word behold, as do the NIV and New RSV. But they don't do that on the basis of any manuscript evidence. They just leave it out. No doubt because they understood the particle, the, the particle behold, as that which simply introduces a story. And in fact, it can do that in Greek. But I think it doubtlessly functions here in this capacity, but it also is given to heighten the awareness of the reader that something extraordinary is about to be seen. In other words, look, there are these sorcerers coming. You know, watch out. But they don't do the bad things that we think they might do. In fact, the very word, the very Greek word magos is where we get our word magic. It usually refers to a wise man or priest who was an expert in astrology. The word always connotes some connection to magic or sorcery. The Dutale and Munster uh, Matthews have Mekashfim, sorcerers, while the Shem Tov Matthew has stargazers. The Peshitta, the Syriac translation, has the more common Megushe, which corresponds to the common term for magicians or sorcerers in the rabbinic literature, Amugasha. Often, Magos is connected, that's the word for, well, that's translated Magi, is connected to the priestly class of astrologers connected with Zoroastrians of the Medes and Persians who were known for their ability to interpret dreams, but in later years became a common term for all who engage in astrology, sorcery, and soothsaying. Where did they come from, says the East? Could be Arabia, could be Babylon, could be Persia. We don't know. But it is kind of uh, intriguing to think if they came from Babylon, what they might have had by way of tradition there. Because we know Daniel spent time in, in Babylon and Daniel prophesied of the Messiah. Is there the possibility that these astrologers in their annals had records of someone who also had given revelation of a coming one at a certain time? Right? It's very possible. I'm not, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't fall on my sword for it, but uh, it's possible. Regardless, Matthew gives us the sense that even the pagan idolaters of the Gentile nations recognize the importance of this child and come to pay him homage. By the way, I don't want to stress this too much, but when you read the Gospels from our vantage point, it appears almost that they can be somewhat almost anti-Semitic, and they've been accused of being anti-Semitic. We have to keep reminding ourselves that Matthew is inside the Jewish community. He's not outside of it. The reason I bring that up is because... You know, uh, in a few verses here, Herod's going to go to the chief priests and the scribes, and he's going to say, tell me, where, where, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they say, oh, it says in, in our prophets that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, <clears throat> after he left, if you were, part of, if you were the chief priests and, pro, and scribes, what would you, you would say? I wonder why he wants to know that. You know, don't you think they would have been more interested? And yet the way Matthew portrays it is the, 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 the Magi travel over land, well, maybe not sea, but they're, they're traveling a long distance to come and find out who this person is. Herod's very uh, interested in who this person is for not so good reasons. But apparently the chief priests and the scribes could care less. We never hear about them inquiring again. So, it, 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 as I say here... Uh, This may be an early indication by Matthew upon the many Israelites of his day who, though having known of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, still rejected Yeshua. Like the story of Jonah, in which the pagan sailors give worship to the God of Israel from whom the prophet was fleeing. So here the Magi, who represent the populations of the nations enslaved by the darkness of the evil one, come to the one who is the true light, even though he is rejected by his own kindred. So, you know, all of the sailors on Jonah's boat do everything that's right. 
Jonah's the prophet that's fleeing from God. And here, Yeshua, born in the very land of Judah, is, is going to be rejected by many of his countrymen. But the foreigners come looking for him. Uh, question or comment? Yeah, that's possible. That, that's very possible. However, um, oh, let me restate that. Um, comment was made that uh, there was political in- intertwinement between uh, chief priests, scribes, and Herod. And we'll talk about that in the future pages here, uh, which is true. And they may have been just happy to wash their hands of the whole thing and stay out of the stay out of the circle. That's what you're saying. And, and uh, had they traveled to Bethlehem. On the other hand, if they had really been people of faith, and you believed with with full faith that the Messiah was coming and that possibly the Messiah was there and that the Messiah was the one who was going to bring salvation to Israel, that Messiah was going to conquer the enemies, if that's what you believed, it would it would you would it would seem like there would be more interest. I mean here you have these we have this motif throughout the gospels. Here are these poor shepherds up on the mountain. They're the ones that get the first-hand news. All of the scholars and the, and the guys with their heads in the book and all of the Torah teachers and everything down in Jerusalem, they don't even know. And here are these three or four or five or ten or two or however many who come from afar bringing gifts to worship. I'm just saying that this seems to be a way that Matthew is saying it's, it's, it's a subtle but a clear indictment upon the the hardened, cold heart of Israel that had learned how to exist in their their everyday routines within Hellenism and and was really not ready to receive her Messiah. Now, again, I I admit that there are some who would say, well, that sounds pretty anti-Semitic. Again, we're looking at it from the inside. It's us. We're not looking at it from, from the outside. Verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. These are the only words that we hear the Magi speak. Their opening query regarding where the promised one was is taken up by Matthew in this chapter. To the question, where was he born? Matthew appeals to Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem. As to where he went after his birth, Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I have called my son. And regarding where he lives, Matthew responds with Nazareth, and he shall be called a Nazarene. So he he's very uh, geographical in this chapter. The grammar of the opening phrase makes it clear that the meaning is not where is he who has been born, comma, king of the Jews, but that it, it means where is the one that is the newborn king. That's how the Greek reads. He has been born for the purpose of reigning as a king. And uh, by the way, the title king of the Jews is only found on the lips of Gentiles. Whenever the Jews are speaking, they say king of Israel in the Gospels. How was it that the Magi referred to Yeshua by this title? And, and I just mentioned the, the fact that it could be that they had some knowledge of Daniel's prophecy. But um, this was not uncommon in the ancient world that there would be uh, some sign for the birth of someone special. For example, Tacitus in his annals remarks that, quote, the general belief is that a comet means a change of emperor. So much so that, and he again quoting Tacitus, when a brilliant comet now appeared, people speculated on Nero's successor as though Nero were already dethroned. Even their sages remark that, quote, every righteous man has his star and it shines according to the brightness of his deeds. There's 
little doubt about the prophet, that the prophecy of Balaam, Balaam, in Numbers 24:17 informed the Jewish perspective that a star would accompany the appearance of Messiah. Quote, a star will come forth out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Both Ankalos and Pseudo-Jonathan understand this text as referring to Messiah, as do the Midrashim. So, in other words, if you want to know, as far as we can tell, the rabbinic understanding of this prophecy that a star would... Uh, come forth out of Jacob and a scepter arise out of Israel. The standard interpretation of that at the time of Yeshua was that this referred to Messiah. Likewise, the Qumran society interpreted Numbers 24:17 as a prophecy of the Levitical Messiah, and they state it clearly in the uh, Damascus Covenant. Finally, the fact that Akiva attributed this prophecy to Bar Kosova, changing his name to Bar Kokhba, in order to proclaim her Messiah, witnesses to the early and strong Messianic interpretation. This being the case, one might wonder why Matthew did not incorporate it into his story. Matthew is the one who tells us about the star. He never quotes Numbers 24. We would just think that he should. It's perfect. Well, the answer must be that at this point in Matthew's narrative, he is focusing on geographical information each of the quotes, as I've noted, something that uh, Numbers 24 does not have. He will spend the whole remainder of his efforts in the gospel account to show that Yeshua fulfills the star or the scepter prophecy of Balaam. Now, most of the historians note that Jupiter, which was known as the star of kingship, and Saturn, which was known as the star of the Jews, by Tacitus at least, were in conjunction three times in 7 BCE. That, that means that they are lined up to the point where they look like they're one. So it would shine very, very brightly. Also, a comet appeared in 5 BCE, according to, uh, to some historians. The fact that the Magi referred to the star as being in the east may also be understood to mean rising. Actually, it should, I, sh- I should rewrite that. It not, could also mean, it definitely means rising. Not in the east, but a rising star, or a star that has come to its apex. The Greek word has a technical use in astronomy, meaning at its rising. This is confirmed by the fact that points of the compass in Greek never take the article which is found here. So he's not talking about, it shouldn't be translated east, it should be translated rising. They saw this star move in the sky, and when it got to its highest point, they said that is definitely something uh, they're telling us something important. We can only speculate the possibility that Matthew has the rising star of Numbers 24 in mind. According to Matthew's further account, the star went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Whatever the star was, then, it was the result of divinely appointed sign marking the appearance of the promised one. And we see that the star must have appeared, and then, you know, sometime earlier, then they made their travels, and then it appeared again, and then apparently, or possibly, it appeared a third time, as we'll see. Okay, we'll stop there, and uh, that's where we will begin next week. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew.